Welcome to Colorado State University's podcast, The Audit, where host Stacy Nick talks with CSU faculty about topics ranging from their latest research to current events. In the 1940s, Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas signed the Republican River Basin Compact, an agreement on exactly how much water each would receive from the Republican River Basin. But in recent years, there's been some dispute about Colorado's compliance. Now the state is being tasked with a looming deadline. Either voluntarily retire 25,000 acres of irrigated land in the basin area by 2029, or face the mandated shutdown of wells potentially impacting several hundred thousand acres of irrigated ag land and the surrounding communities. Earlier this year, state legislators tasked Colorado State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and its Colorado Water Center with researching the potential impact to the Republican River Basin region if we don't meet the deadline. John Tracy is director of the Colorado Water Center and a professor in the Department of Ecosystem Science and Sustainability in the Warner College of Natural Resources. Jordan Souter is a professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics in the College of Agricultural Sciences. Today, I'm talking with them about the study and the complicated history of the compact. I want to start by talking about the history of the Republican River Compact. John, can you tell us how we got here? One of the interesting things about the compacts that Colorado entered into with its neighboring states, primarily to the east, so this includes the South Platte Compact, the Republican Compact, and the Arkansas River Compact, is that these compacts were entered into uh, many years after irrigation had started on these streams. And what had happened during that period of time is that irrigation was not completely efficient, so a lot of water applied to grow crops ended up being more water than was needed. And so there was a lot of water that ended up recharging what are called the alluvial aquifers that are connected to these rivers. And then there were flow in the rivers and eventually the downstream states said, hey, we wanna make sure we get our fair share. And Colorado having used the compact mechanism before said, instead of litigating, let's negotiate this politically. And they came up to agreements. And so in the Republican River, this compact came into being in the 40s. This is one of the issues that doesn't get talked about much in Colorado or the other states. But in essence, Colorado kind of sold itself a little short in terms of the actual water available because it wasn't just the water flowing in the river. There was also all that water that had recharged the groundwater that was making its way back to the river. And so in essence, what they agreed to was sort of a situation where there was more water than would have been there naturally, as it were. And then they split it up with Kansas and with the Republican River. And then there was this thing called centrifugal pumps, if you think of a jacuzzi pump. And all of a sudden, groundwater pumping became very efficient. And so then irrigators in the late 50s and and 60s started putting in pumps to pump groundwater. And that started impacting the entire balance of the stream flow. That is, not only was there not that recharge coming to the groundwater, which eventually made its way back to the river, but now all of a sudden they were taking groundwater, which was actually taking water out of the river. And this led to low flows. And again, not just in the Republican, but the Arkansas and the South Platte also. 
And then Kansas noticed this as well as Nebraska <laughs> and said, hey, you know, we kind of agreed in a compact. This is how much water we get. And we think you're taking too much. And that's when the sort of the, I guess I'd say the dispute started. And then they entered into sort of a, a different agreement saying, well, you're right. This groundwater is connected to the surface water and our groundwater pumpers are impacting your ability and your allocation of water under the compact. And that's why it eventually led to this agreement that, okay, we're going to have to modify the compact. And there's a variety of ways it was modified, but one of the ways was that Kansas and Colorado agreed that if 25,000 acres of irrigated land from groundwater was retired in a specific area of the Republican River Basin, then Colorado would be in compliance. And that's how we get to the point of needing to retire 25,000 acres of groundwater irrigated land to come back into compliance with the compact. The farmers near the South Fork of the Basin have two programs that they can sign up for. One is to switch to dryland farming or grazing, and the other one pays slightly more to basically stop all agricultural activity. How common is a program like this, especially one of this scale? To provide a little context across the Western United States in irrigated agriculture, this is not that unusual of an idea. There was a program in Idaho called the Bell Rapids Project where the state basically paid farmers to retire 24,000 plus acres of irrigated farmland for kind of an interesting reason, not exactly the same reason as here, but they needed to stop irrigating this land because it was creating problems. And so basically the state water control board came up with funding to, in essence, buy them out in order to pay them to stop irrigating. The Westlands Water District in California, which had caused a serious environmental problem at Kesterson National Wildlife Refuge, there was buyout programs there, both from the federal government through the Bureau of Reclamation and the state. They retired, I think it was about 15,000, maybe 20,000 acres of land, which again, were buyouts that pay people to retire land. And if you go across the Western United States, whenever these types of problems come up, there has typically been some type of either one-time buyout or one-time payment to retire lands. So it may seem odd to some people, but this has been fairly standard practice across much of the irrigated West. Taking ag land out of production to promote conservation or ecosystem service provision actually does have a fairly long history, really ramping up in the 80s and 90s with the Conservation Reserve Program. It does seem like kind of a, a blunt force instrument to use to reduce groundwater use, but I think the advantage is that it's verifiable. It's easy to see what land is being irrigated and what land isn't, whereas many areas don't necessarily have the gauges on, on pumps to gauge kind of how much water is being used per year, but we can easily observe how much land is being irrigated. And, and so that has often been the metric that we've used to try to record reductions in water use. Why is it critical that we retire these acres? Is there no other solution? There have been various programs over the years that I've been involved with that goes back several decades. And there have been attempts to say, well, we'll just be more efficient with our water or we'll conserve some here. But the reality is the amount of water being used for agricultural production is the evapotranspiration from the crop being grown. And so if you actually want to save that water, you have to retire the land. End of story. That's it. And anything else, it's like 
Now, your crop's still growing and using the same amount of water. <laughs> You're not saving anything from water from the stream. And so it comes down to a retirement of lands. It is the most effective tie-in to the amount of water that is going to be used in that particular area. So it is probably the most effective mechanism if what you're after is to use less water. Everything else is kind of smoke and mirrors and you're not really saving the water you think you're saving. When you retire the land and you're not applying water on it and you're not growing crops, you're saving the water. You've been tasked with studying the economic loss to the region should Colorado fail to meet the 2029 deadline. Jordan, what specifically will you be looking at? The big concern here is that if the 25,000 acres are not retired, in other words, we don't meet that target, then the state engineer may need to essentially turn off all of the wells in the Republican Basin, uh, something like 3,000 groundwater wells. And as you can imagine, irrigated agriculture is a really critical part of the economy in this region. So when you take away that irrigation, it's going to have significant economic impacts. And, and that's what we want to understand. I'm going to ask you both to kind of look into your crystal ball here, because I know you've just begun your research, but how likely are we to meet this goal? And what could the impacts be if we fail? One thing we do know is that agriculture plays a critical role in this part of the state. It really drives the economy. And a big part of that is irrigated crop production. Almost all of the irrigation in this region comes from groundwater. And if you were to take that away, it's gonna have significant economic impacts. Obviously, there's, there are some things that we don't know that we're going to be working on in the study, and part of that is to understand what will folks do. We don't assume that if they're not able to use irrigation that that land is just going to completely go fallow, but it's not clear exactly what land is suitable for dry land crop production, what land might be used for grazing, etc. So some of the work that we'll be doing is to try to uh, get a better understanding and, and make better predictions in that regard so that we can more fully understand the economic impacts of something like this if it were to occur. And in terms of what the consequences would be retiring the 25,000 acres versus a couple hundred thousand acres, while it always comes down to the specifics of the area you're looking at, we do have some analogs out there. For example, looking at the 25,000 acres, that's almost exactly the number of acres retired in the Bell Rapids project. But the manner in which they were retired with some type of economic compensation, it had an impact locally. But even within the region, it was pretty insignificant as the resources that the farmers were paid were reinvested in other types of activities. And so it kind of comes into the manner in which you retire the land. If you just shut it off, that would be one thing versus compensation. The other thing is, is that we can look to the Southern Ogallala region in Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, where over the last several decades, because of declining water levels, they've had well into the hundreds of thousands of acres retired just simply because those wells are non-productive. And it is interesting to see the impacts at the local level. There's some communities that have, have really, really suffered, but it's also been interesting to see the continued economic growth in Amarillo through Lubbock region and how that ended up transitioning into other crops that are more water efficient, for example, moving from corn and alfalfa to cotton. That was a big one. And so when you start looking at these types of things, the overall impacts become really specific to the region, hence the need for the study here, because you, you can look at that and say, well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of local impacts in the southern Ogallala, not as many regional impacts, even though you're talking almost the same order of magnitude of land retired. 
But I think that's also something where it's like it's not quite an analog because, for example, you cannot grow cotton in the eastern plains of Colorado, at least not yet. But there's research going on that is trying to move the cotton belt all the way up to Nebraska. So who knows? <laughs> and it is interesting to see how these agricultural systems adjust. And again, it's it's a big part of why we're doing this study is to understand that, to try to provide some perspective for state lawmakers, you know, the regional water managers, the state water managers, to make sure that the incentives are in place to retire the 25,000 acres. Because if that happens, I will guarantee you that the consequences of retiring those 25,000 acres will be much, 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 much less than having to shut down all the wells. It's just maybe there's some things we can find out that maybe either provide better incentives or they provide better paths forward for the communities and the region as a whole to make sure that those economic impacts are minimized. It sounds like there are a lot of unknowns right now. One of the, I guess I'd say, problems with the compacts is that they tended to be very prescriptive in who got so much water. And that's become one of the challenges with working within these compacts, simply because the climate has changed and the predictability of river flows has really gotten difficult. And, you know, sort of telling somebody, either an upstream state or a downstream state, you get so much water when you're sort of relying on an unreliable climatological system now <laughs> has become problematic. And so I think, you know, kind of in the larger picture, the focus of this study is definitely pointing out the consequences of not meeting this compact requirement. But I do think there needs to be a bigger discussion taken on soon to talk about what are we going to do in terms of looking at these compacts in the future, because prescribing the amount of water each of the states is going to get doesn't seem to be a feasible way moving forward just simply because it is so unpredictable right now. You cannot do that on a year-to-year -year or even decade-by-decade -decade basis anymore. It's interesting because it's sort of like we don't know what the flow is going to be in any of these rivers next year, but we sort of have an understanding based on past history of the variability in these flows. And the problem is, is that, well, we don't even have that understanding of the variability anymore. And that makes it even more difficult because if you said, well, we know it varies by this much, we could put a probability on how much flow will be there next year. And now we're sort of shrugging our shoulders and saying, I don't know. It's, it's you know, we had the two lowest flow years in the Colorado River, the two previous water years. And then we ended up with a gangbuster year this year. And you were hard pressed to say, well, would anybody have predicted that? Well, not we wouldn't have predicted it. We wouldn't have predicted the range and the probability. And so when you're sort of flying that blind, it's really difficult to agree to commit to so much water going in various places because you just you can't allocate water that doesn't exist. Jordan, from the producer's perspective, how are they reacting to all of this? Producers hate uncertainty, and this is a massive element of uncertainty that's lurking out there. And I, and I think they want to avoid that at all costs, having to have these impacts on their operations, but even more than that, on their communities. The producers that we work with are very interested, obviously, in maintaining their own viability for their operation, but they also want to see their communities thrive and not lose population. They want to be able to pass down a viable farm operation to their kids and when uncertainty like this exists, it makes it harder to imagine that future and to imagine that community being there in the long run, which is obviously hugely concerning to all the folks in the Republican Basin. 
That was CSU Agricultural and Resource Economics Professor Jordan Souter and Colorado Water Center Director John Tracy speaking about their research regarding the Republican River Basin Compact. I'm your host, Stacey Nick, and you're listening to the CSU podcast, The Audit.